Because you can. Figure out how to start doing videos. Videos are bullshit. Don't do video. Okay. All podcasts. Yeah. If if Birdman taught taught us anything, it's that the image is dead. It's like, let's just go straight voice here. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Actual Garbage Podcast. We are going to do, once again, in the interest of continuing to burgeon the horizons of what a podcast can mean, at least in my life, uh, we're going to do a movie review of a very topical uh, very topical piece, Birdman, by the one and only, what the hell is his name, Alejandro Gonzalez Inarito. That'll work. Uh purveyor of such hang on i think i actually have this here purveyor of although i can list all his movies off the good ones <laughs> i'm sure you can nicole who is our guest along with ryan for this episode for very good reason uh nicole and ryan i know more about nicole but i think ryan was tagging along for most of this everybody talks about you know the afi 100 and the, you know all the movies you're supposed to have watched. You guys actually, I believe, have watched all those movies. Uh, I would feel confident in that assertion. Yes. Uh, if not all of them, I'm fairly close. Yeah. Yeah. I know virtually nothing about movies. My expertise lies elsewhere, which is why I needed a second and tertiary opinion yes. on this movie. Uh, I'm not going to actually state out loud unless it becomes emergent and necessary what my opinions of it. Are, I actually want to sort of be the moderator of this exchange, uh, at least partially, to once again expand the horizons of what this podcast can be, given that I've never done that before. Nicole, who are you, and why are you here to discuss The Birdman or The Unexpected Virtue of Ignorance? My name is Nicole Paddock. Uh, this is my first time on this podcast or any podcast. Fabulous. I My history in film, I am a failed film major back in my uh, glory days of Valencia Community College. I was very set on going into film, and then I realized two things. One, there's no film jobs in Orlando, which is fine, but I didn't want to move to California either. <laughs> two, it requires substantial amounts of networking, which... At that point, I did not feel comfortable in my networking abilities to be able to go anywhere. Um, yeah, Sorry and I guess uh, the the final breaking point in my my film career was a Godard class that just basically drove me to madness, and uh, my film career then kind of died off. And now I'm just an enjoyer of films. Excellent, Ryan. Why are you here opposite Nicole? Uh, well, I, too, am a failed film student uh, of Valencia College as well. Uh, that was actually our early affini- uh, affinity for films is what really, I think, you know, burgeoned our friendship in a longer, in a longer term as well. Um, you know, I, I'm a student of film, a fastidious student of film. Uh, and I liked, and you mentioned the AFI 100, you know, both Nicole and I, when we realized that we liked, the, liked movies, you know, we wanted to, you know, push the bounds of what movies were. We weren't going to merely focus on necessarily what were popular movies, but it also, and this is a rare thing for younger people to do, we actually tried to watch movies that were made before we were born. I know, it's bullshit. I okay. don't know how you tolerate it. Yeah, <laughs> it's um, it's actually quite, you know, it's, it's quite astounding. I mean, you if you look at older films and you don't use the expectations you have in, in a modern sense of what a film can be, uh, you actually, I think, can you know see different ideas and be able to connect with people in a way that, uh, and connect with art, I think, in a larger sense than what is normally capable of, in the sense that 
it is not merely entertainment, but I think perhaps the best medium that we can move forward with in understanding what art has in terms of its possibility in the future. And I think that film encapsulates so much of that. More so than other forms of visual art? Yeah, I would say so. I mean, the one thing that it does lose is a sense of scale, but the thing's projected 40 feet, you know, on a, on a massive sense in front of you as well. It's got presence. Absolutely. And it combines so much of other mediums also. You have sound, you have light, you have color, uh, you have form, you have shape, you have all these things that then move forward in an experience that people can really, I think, connect with more at, at, a, at a, and not, and a human level sounds a little bit ridiculous, but I think that you know, seeing a story unfold, seeing and hearing people discuss these things. I mean, they all have presence, but I think film is in its in its visual sense, which is why I tend to enjoy it more than other as well, especially why I enjoy film more than uh, plays, uh, for example, is that is that visual sense that I think film encapsulates more as well. And I love film. I mean, I fucking love film, and I love it from its earliest days to the trip of the trip to the moon up till Birdman. Now, I love all of it and all of its iterations. So let's get into it. Yes. This Academy Award-winning masterpiece. Ryan, opening statement. I think this film is one of the best films I've seen in the last five years. I think it is virtuosic in its execution, and I think it is one of the most complete stories uh, that we have seen, that I have seen in a long time. And I really and truly believe, like I said, it's probably one of the best films the last five, if not ten years, that I have seen. The other one being uh, Synecdoche, New York. So, Nicole, why is he full of shit? Okay, I, I watched this movie twice, and though, you know, wasn't huge on it the first time, warmed up to it a little bit the second time, but my initial opinion on the film remained the same. It's a movie with a lot of actors getting off on being actors, and unfortunately, the plight of the actor is just not a narrative that really, that I care about at all. Um, <laughs> with that said, I do think it is a, a very well, well-executed film, but it just doesn't do anything for me personally. Okay. Well, <laughs> would you like to maybe... I mean, I'd like to get into... Why, uh, let's, let me talk about this film cinematically before we can really discuss and frustrate each other on why we like why we dislike its story component overall. I mean, yeah. okay, for those of you who haven't seen... Do you dislike the story component? No, I love it. I, th I think... Okay, this is, this is part of the reason why I like this film in general is that I think... It, and this is... Part of what makes films so unique is also is that if you can match the what we talk, what we talk about cinematically, why I like this film, what you're doing is kind of incorporating the technical aspects of what it takes to actually make a film. And the second component is is that if you translate the story itself into the mode or method of storytelling that a film can provide, I mean, that synthesis of those two broad things is what really, I think, Lee can project film to a higher range overall than most standard art forms. For example, there's really been no revolution in how to present words on the page, right? We got like, you know, the idea of Cervantes and Don Quixote, which creates the modern conception of the novel. And really, it's all just been tuning out the differences from then and there. I think, you know, 350 years of novel writing moving forward overall. I mean, really, since we've seen, uh, you know, the the movement of like visual art in terms of painting, you've got the, you know, rediscovery of perspective, you've got the grander scale that you can put it on, i.e. everything from the Sistine Chapel on downwards, right, is where, you know, you can move with the idea of visual range. You then bring in the more modern 20th century conception of the idea of not representation, but of expression. And you have this, once again, a kind of static overall dynamic. But with film, you can be more complete than a, than a, than other forms of visual art in its execution. And I think that's the overall component of why I like Birdman so much. I find its story elements and its cinematic elements, the method of which it makes and tells its story, I think they blend together 
beautifully. I think the method is very good, but I guess on the story aspect, let me let me ask you a question, Ryan. Now, you know, when you watch a film, the actors are playing a character, but you also have a relationship with the actor that is playing that character that affects your ability, not affects your ability, but it affects, you know, how you feel towards that movie. I mean, you ha- you can't negate that. So... Are you a Michael Keaton fan? <laughs> like, did this movie excite you that, like, they pulled someone out of the dirt that you were a fan of before, and you're like, man, this is, this is, this is good. Like, I, I can empathize with this character as Michael Keaton, and I can empathize with this character as Regan Thomas, and I can connect both of those into a story that really engages me. Okay, so I talked before about the synthesis of this thing in general, and I think that the choice of Michael Keaton is fucking great. It's a great, great decision overall. Okay, first off, my favorite Michael Keaton role is Beetlejuice. I mean, I find that Beetlejuice has a more, the most anarchic, wonderful understanding of what a character could be. I knew you were going to say that. Yeah. (laughs) So I I fucking love him in Beetlejuice. But where this, where, where Inorito's fucking point is, is that this... Choosing Michael Keaton, who was not Birdman, he was Batman, and that he fucking chooses this actor to move into this. But I we think, know that he is both Birdman yes, and Batman. And he must reconcile the two on screen itself. So I think it's not that so much that I like Michael Keaton. I mean, he could have chosen another, you know, major actor to you know, put into this role. And by the way, you know, the whole point of Michael Keaton's character, the Birdman character himself, Regan Thomas, the actor who plays them, and Michael Keaton as well, is that it both mirrors your expectation of, you know, are we seeing this actor playing an actor, playing a former megastar role who has to reconcile our, his, our preconceived notions of the actor while we reconcile our preconceived notions of Michael Keaton. We have to find a way to look at and understand this. So I like Michael Keaton, yes, but the choice of Michael Keaton is also very, very fucking well done. And that's what, once again, I th- I'm going to make this argument over and over again. The fucking synthesis of all these elements is part of why I really, really like this movie. But once again, Nicole, if I may, isn't it really the fault of the viewer if you have some personal hang-up about an actor and that ruins your enjoyment of the film? Can't you get over it? It's not a personal hang-up. I was just I was just bringing up how, you know, your relationship to the actor does affect how you feel about it. So if you were more inclined to be a Michael Keaton fan, like this film would excite you in the sense where, you know, people get excited when they bring back revivals. I mean, look at, like, Pulp Fiction when they revitalized John Travolta. People were, you know, people were into that. And I feel like this movie does that for Michael Keaton. However, I don't have, like, the connection to Beetlejuice and Batman. And, it, you know, he's just he's just the, the guy playing the actor. Like, I don't have a, a you know, kind of like a, a prior, uh, you know relationship with him where I, you know, where like I, you know, like I can look back at Beetlejuice and be like, man, I really enjoyed him in Beetlejuice. He's, he's just the guy playing Regan Thomas right. to me. And like I said before, I just, there's something about the actor's plight. And I understand that being an actor is tough and you're waiting your whole life for people to validate you. But I, you know, all of, all of Alejandro's other films get so down and gritty and just hit so many different emotional like emotional levels as far as like the human experience and this one was so much more hollywoodized in a sense that you know 
he's trying to bring out that emotion a little bit in terms of of showing, you know, showing the emotional turmoil that, you know, Regan Thomas is going through as in terms of, you know, dealing with the fact that he used to be a star and then trying to make a comeback and the pressure that fame puts on you. And I just, I felt like this one, this film was just more Hollywoodized and he played into that Hollywoodized system a little bit more than his previous films, which really were just about getting the human emotion out. Do you have a particular Alejandro classic that you're referring to when you're making this comparison? My favorite Alejandro one is 21 Grams. And I like, and yet again, technically a great movie, just like Birdman is. But what I liked about that, where Birdman was more of a linear, uh, a linear story, 21 Grams, he, he creates a, creates a, a, a story in which the emotional climax of these three stories, though they do not happen uh, at the same time on the linear timeline of these stories, he edits them in such a way that he maximizes the emotional climax by building all of, by building all of these stories to peak at the same time within the, um, within the film. And mm-hmm. I just thought it was it was brilliant, and I I just didn't feel that from Birdman. Right. Which point, which scene in that movie felt like the climax to both of you in Birdman? Because that's actually a point that occurred to me when I watched it the second time, is that there are really at least two points that can be considered the clash in that movie. I would not disagree. There's definitely at least two points in there. Um... I mean, my points of contention would be the the point where the fire and ice of Tabitha and Riggin in the bar was one. Yeah, him with the critic, yeah. Yeah, uh, the actor versus the critic. And then there's obviously the more obvious climax where he shoots himself. Spoilers. Um, <laughs> and, well, and there's also the, it's kind of like a false climax where after he wakes up hungover and he's at the top of the yeah. building... I mean, that was kind of like a false call climax. Like, first time viewing it, I thought that was going to actually peak out there, and I was surprised that the movie kind of oh, kept I going. Oh, I thought it was dead. Yeah, and I'm surprised that the movie kept going and then, like, reclimaxed for real, you know, after that scene. <laughs> yeah, no, I, mean, I got I to tell you, that, like, this is, you know, the, the, the way in which this story unfolds is very fucking clever. I mean, he, the Alejandro, I mean, he... he he stages these elements out and plays with our preconceptions about what we're expecting from this. And each of these little mini climaxes has its own kind of resolution in and of themselves. We get we get the, the critic controversy, and then we have the internal dialogue between Birdman and Riggin. We have the jumping off the building uh, and the flight scene. And then we have the re- resolution between Riggin and his ex-wife, uh, his daughter's mother. Then we have the climax of the play itself where he uh, uh, attempts suicide on stage. And then we get the final resolution. We see uh, Riggin reconciled with the public and the idea that what he does, you know, pushes this idea of fame that he is both craving and seemingly not craving. And then we get a resolution with the daughter as well. And then the movie ends in the kind of odd and beautiful nature. And I mean, there's... I mean, there's so, so much in this film overall. I mean, there's just these little details. So, for example, after 
the the suicide scene, he uh, the, the the final climax, which you referred to, right? He goes, he bears himself, he literally bails himself. He he tears off a piece of his face in front of his own audience, and they love him for it. And then in the very next scene, the next time we see Riggin, what is he? He's masked again. He mirrors and he evokes the same Birdman idea in which he had tried to achieve, right? It's it's the the the, the mesh on his face from the, from surgery, and he's masked again after that. I mean, there's just these these brilliant brilliant little touches through this little fi- film that but still, constantly. He still failed at the suicide. Yeah, I know. And that's because <laughs> he is, and it's. I mean, I've got to tell. I've got to say though. I mean, the the execution of this film, and I think the two things that are ascent, that are really really brilliant in this thing, in terms of its execution, and I'll get to why it relates to the story maybe later on, uh, is that first off the camera work. I mean, I have to say, I had I have not seen a film use camera work so effectively this ethereal present but not their camera and it's 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 amazing how this thing moves through the stage moves through and follows the actors sometimes it is its own disembodied shape sometimes it takes on the perspective of actors and then seamlessly falls out from it i mean it is it is virtuosic in its camera work and that alone i was so so enthralled and that to me was not a barrier many people see camera movement or you know uh, the cinema verite style of, of you know the the blair witch project syndrome right where it's all shaky and movie around that is really a block for some people to move through that and i understand this but you know, you talked before about Hitchcockian, you know, the Hitchcockian oh, elements very, that are within. The, the, I, I can't disagree with you on that. The camera work was top notch. And yeah, it did incorporate a lot of Hitchcockian elements. Um, just What's a Hitchcockian element? Like, okay, so at the end, you know, they're watching the people come out of the movie theater. In it, but it's all one shot. Like, and then the camera goes up. It goes through the grating on the little balcony into the window into where Riggin is is sitting in his dressing room preparing for the final act like an improbable vantage yes yeah yes um so just you know basically working working the camera into the story that way um and doing these these long I mean these are very complicated shots to execute and the entire movie is basically just one complicated like you know, it's affected to look as if it's one guy walking around the whole time. Essentially. And that's very complicated to do. And it was done. It, it, it was executed very, very well. Yeah. I cannot say anything bad about the cinematography in this I, film. I, excellent. Okay, good. <laughs> Keep it score here. <laughs> no, the, uh, but another thing, too. Okay, so you talked about the idea of Hitchcock. And, well, one of the things that really we can kind of... You know, we can really split film into the pre-Hitchcockian elements and the post-Hitchcockian elements. It's rough. It's harsh. I mean, Fritz Lang does a lot of stuff where he brings in the the psychological use of the camera. I know that's a loaded term overall. But uh, what's the most popular movie Fritz Lang has ever made? M. M. Yeah, M is probably his most famous film. It's It's the original. It is the original, um, like Law and Order serial killer movie. Like all of those those cops. And we're gonna go find a serial killer. We're gonna go find Procedurals. a pedophile. That that was the first one. Yeah, it's, um, a, it's a it's a German it's a German film pre Nazi uh, film industry. Which if you know your German film history, uh, that watch. was the height of German yeah. <laughs> uh, experimental film. Yeah, he he moves it out of the realm of the silent era, which is the 1920s. They're just on the cusp of sound. And once again, this is a new medium, right? This is like someone discovering a new paint medium, someone discovering a new way that you could build a, a, a sculpture out of. You incorporate sound into this, and he uh, moves beyond. 
the elements of what had been incorporated into sound technology into film, and he really just blows it open. And in a sense, he uses that the sound and also the camera techniques to evoke this this subtle psychological terror of a pedophile serial killer being on the loose in a town in Germany. And we, okay, so we're getting backed up here, but the idea is, is that if you don't know who Fritz Lang is, you should fucking go and find this out and watch his <laughs> other movies. But regardless of which. Uh, when we see this idea of Hitchcockian of Hitchcockian film, and and he really kind of is a departure point overall. So why, why have this? Why have the camera show people exiting the film and then move the camera up into the window, move it through this to sh- display the actors? There's a there's an effect overall that whether you're aware of it or not relates this idea of exterior and interior. And when you move into and go into somewhere else, and when it actually you see the the slow process of that taking place, you feel in a sense that the venue has changed. You're psychologically and, and, and perceptively, you notice the difference, right? From going from a busy, crowded street, following it into a, a quiet, close interior, right? You understand what the effect is of that as well. The same way that if you were at a party and someone pulled you closer to them into a corner of the room, you would understand the context and the situation would be different. And you would perceive that interaction differently than if someone was shouting to you in the middle of a party. And so in terms of when we talk about cinematically about how, what films do to achieve that effect, right? we understand that we b- we're being shown something intimate. And this film, once again, destroys these barriers in such a fluid way. I mean, that's one thing to like, you know, to, to, to be radical and to have ca- cameras take different perspectives overall. But this camera is intentionally drawing attention to itself, right? Most m- watch movies, right? What you want is a camera that people don't realize what they're watching. We want to, we want to, most people want a camera to feel that if they could just turn their heads, they'd see the whole movie. Or that this is what action movies are designed to do. And yet, this is so conspicuously filmed, and yet tries to alleviate this. And this is also true, too, because the story also, I mean, we haven't even brought up the fact that apparently Riggin Thomas has superpowers in this film, right? Has tele- telekinesis is when you can move shit with your mind, right? Yes. Yes, okay, yep. good. Yeah, it's not, it's not the SB. Um, but he's got this idea of telekinesis, and so... We are even, are we seeing what is, what Riggin sees within his own mind, the powers that he feels he has made manifest in his own imagination into the real world? We don't know. We can't see these things displayed in its own sense. And the film is constantly teasing this idea. Are we seeing things through from his perspective? But we're, he's on film. We're not seeing it through his eyes, but through his own mind. It's constantly reverting into itself as well. And this is... Did you did you not feel that, that the, the Birdman presence was I kind of got the feeling that that was Riggin's ego because basically the lower Riggin got the more Birdman would show up and basically tell him you know just fuck all these people like you know that you're awesome like I I felt like that was the ego speaking and as a total non-expert I have to say Ryan this the scene where he's tearing up his room Mm -hmm. where when he's alone he's doing it telekinetically and when he's not, he's tearing shit up with his hand. I thought that more or less destroyed that as a literal rather than metaphorical. I interpretation. felt it was very metaphorical. No, 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 as no, no, well. no. I mean, look, because this is this is the key. Then you're then you're losing the whole point of what the end scene is, right? Uh, spoiler, right? He fucking jumps out of his hotel window. His daughter goes, looks down, sees nothing, looks up, fucking, and is enthralled. I mean, in the most beautiful sense of this movie, she represents and recognizes to a certain extent. I don't know it's metaphorical. I mean, yeah, don't don't get me wrong, but yet the way in which that is revealed, it is in a sense this idea of sharing the perception overall that someone would see or recognize the power that someone has because Edward Norton's character overall talks about this idea of 
you know, why he wants to achieve truth and to have this effect and to push forward. And by the way, Edward Norton's character almost disappears after he has sex with, with Regan's daughter. He, he disappears as an entity in that film for an important reason, because he overall is this representation of finding truth within the actor himself. And once Regan understands that he's going to le let it all hang out there, right? He is risking everything. He's metaphorically getting his powers back. Yes, he's metaphorically getting his powers back. And the strange thing is, is that as he, as he dis disappears, Bird, the Birdman character, because overall in the first part of the film, Birdman is a picture on a wall in a disembodied voice, right? A semi-narrator, right? Th that's within the film. Then he is actually made manifest. We actually see the Birdman character following him around. The emphasis gets moved onto him within this overall. And we know that overall... What we're seeing and right with the idea of him flying and then he goes to the theater and then he goes into it and then we see that there has been a taxi that has actually brought him there and the guy's pissed off that he didn't pay them. I get all that. But then we kind of recognize too that when at that last scene when he jumps out of the window, metaphorically or not, by the way, right, we, that is left hanging as well. He could have jumped out of this window and yet when she looks down, she doesn't see him. But then when she looks up, she sees what uh, in, intending to imply that he has in fact achieved this flight that has been metaphorically reasoned in the film as well. And I think that that interplay overall is what this thing moves hangs on. We consciously know that this is absurd. No one has actual telekinesis. And yet it continually goes back as this manifestation of what is it within himself. And the way that that plays with, I mean, you know, you're always told in film classes, don't go too far, right? Because people won't really go far with you. There's a very famous story. Do they tell you things in yes. film classes? Okay, there's a brilliant anecdote. All right, so I've never been in one, so I, I have no Okay, idea. good. I only get, let's 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 talk here about Sam Peckinpah, who I did an amazing <laughs> 12th grade report on. This is my, my the best class. You talk about my gifted studies, yeah. all right? I did cinematography, I did Hunter S. Thompson, and I did Sam Peckinpah. Okay, for the note, just to stay consistent with all other guests on the actual pod on the actual garbage podcast, I too was in gifted classes. Fantastic. Excellent. Um, <laughs> So, and if you're unfamiliar with Sam Peckinpah and you want to see American film at its height, try finding a copy of Straw Dogs. Yes. Dustin Hoffman's Straw Dogs. Incredible film. He is, he is noted in the late 60s, early 70s in bringing violence into film, right? We see blood. We see people dying on film. We see uh, very, uh, the manifestation of violence on film. This is controversial, to say the least, in the late 60s, graphic, early 70s. Graphic, graphic violence. Graphic violence, yes. Blood not the not the caca caca and they like you know yeah blow. not the one shot they're down there's like one little drop where the bullet hole is and and all is good this was graphic violence so in Sam when Sam Peckinpah realizes he's gonna you know he's gonna jump off the outside the the uh, the the hospital window here when he's gonna leap out the hospital window he decides he's gonna make this final scene in this movie called The Wild Bunch, incredibly violent. I mean, slow motion, cut off hands flying across the screen. And what happened- Animals were hurt in yes, the making of that killing, film. Intentionally killing animals. He makes the scene so overbearingly violent and vicious that when it's shown to test audiences, they laugh, right? He'd wanted to evoke a sense of horror, of, 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 of nastiness, and to have people affected. And instead, what do they do? They laughed. They didn't. They couldn't reconcile what they were seeing, and they laughed it off. And so you're always told to like not go too far because people just won't go there with you. It will either be too uncomfortable, it'll be too difficult. And when we find those moments overall in our lives, we <laughs> or they also start to disassociate. They also start to disassociate. So you can, um, 
sympathy for Mr. Vengeance, I can think of a scene specifically where they're torturing someone. And at first it's really awkward. You're like a little cringy, but they keep doing it and they keep doing it. And the scene goes on so long that by the end of it, you're laughing because you can only take in so much before you have to disassociate and kind of brush it off. So you have to find balance. Mm-hmm. To bring the millennial side of this uh, conversation back into it, do these techniques apply at all to the Tarantino style of violence and horror? Because that that is the parallel I am drawing. When you're in Django Unchained, any scene where there is either serious black exploitation or there's a slow motion fight where there is like erupting blood coming out of people. Is that an inspiration on he, his side? He sees, well, he, I think that Tarantino sees both of it because he does have, in, he does have good ultraviolence that makes you cringe, but he also understands that violence gets campy and he likes both aspects. So I think he works both sides of the chain because in Django Unchained, some of the violence was campy, like especially the end, the black exploitation. They're like, yeah, we're going to get all these white slave owners. But now that Mandingo fight was very uncomfortable yeah. to watch. So he understands both sides of that spectrum. Yeah, he, he's an he's an auteur of film violence. I mean, you can you can go back to things like Reservoir Dogs where you have uh, you know one character in Reservoir Dogs who spends the end of the entire film slowly dying to a gunshot wound to his gut. And he that's his whole role is to slowly die and bleed out on the side of the thing there. And then you know, the very famous scene is Reservoir Dogs where the guy gets where the one character gets the gets his ear cut off. And those those you know he it's not it's not ironic. I hate the, the use of that word to describe that overall, but it is a very very vicious sense of what we see, where what what is the vir- virtue or value? And usually it's this classic film idea which is that right the unseen Terror is more frightening than the scene than what we actually see, right? And that, in a sense, also a very Hitchcockian. Yes, it, yes. It, it, Thank you yes. once again. That I actually know. Yes, yes. and and so this sense too, <laughs> where you get the you get this very very horrid act that is suggested to a certain extent, that is that is hinted at but never shown, and we see the consequences of it as well. We can see several things in Hitchcock's films films that do this, but also as well, if I could bring my favorite instance of this idea of hinted at horror and its emotional effect. If anyone has seen the movie Grizzly Man by Werner Herzog, oh, yes. there's a very, very brutal scene in that where this man who spends time in uh, year after year after year with these grizzlies, spoiler alert, eventually gets eaten by one of them. And the thing is, is that it's recorded, but the camera had the lens cap on. So all that is available of their death is the audio. And you spend the whole time knowing that this happens, right? So, I mean, it's not a spoiler alert. It's in the fucking first 10 minutes of the film that this guy gets killed by these grizzlies. But then you know it's recorded, and you, you're emotionally building up to this climax of his death. And what Werner Herzog does, in the, and I think is, I mean, I was crying by this element as well, knowing that this has happened and, and it's been recorded, you never actually hear the death. What you do, however, experience is Werner Herzog listening to this man being eaten, his man and his wife being eaten by the grizzly, in front of the man's sister, who we also know has never listened to the tape. And we see this moment exposed, and we see Herzog's reaction, we see the woman's reaction, who doesn't know what's on it, but knows what's on it, and it is this, I mean, just staged out, and then you imagine in your own mind what being eaten by a grizzly would sound like, let alone look like and experienced as well. You, you have these levels of experience that are relayed to you. And the way that film can the way that film can play with all of those expectations is what makes it so uniquely 
unique in the art world. And once again, you the idea of Tarantino has both those elements. He enjoys it for its raucous enjoyment, right? Killing white slave owners would be a gas. I don't disagree. I would really killing you know, Hitler would be too. Oh, he lives yeah. out all his fantasies. Exactly. Like we we get to see that and enjoy that and and have the emotional catharsis. But then when needed, we also experience the tension, the fear, the 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 the, the actual brutality yes, the, of the, the violence yeah, that's we, being portrayed. But we have to have the balance of experiencing that overall. And in in, in Alejandro in this film, Birdman plays with that reality, unreality, and I think a very, very important way. Now, most people will not like Birdman, right? They'll they'll go through this, they'll be like, what the fuck am I watching? Why the, you know it's, It seems the average masses all feel pretty consistently that it was just a movie that wasted two hours of their time. Yeah, and I think too because they don't they don't suspend a certain sense of disbelief. What isn't what isn't seeming real can't I can't react to as real, right? I will never fully give myself emotionally to something if I can't see it or relate it usually specifically to my own experience. And it is strange overall that people that some people can go forward with this, but not everyone. So for example, like the Lord of the Rings films are not something that many people can co- connect emotionally to, right? We can disembody ourselves, but we still can't really engage or relate to it on an emotional level because it's orcs and goblins and elves and things like that. And I understand that absolutely. And we all have our, we all have our, you know, hangups that might prevent us from enjoying a story. But in the sense, should we have any hangups that prevent us from going forward or connecting emotionally? I mean, could we connect? People connect, and children especially. And this is what is interesting. Children can connect emotionally with disembodied or unreal characters, right? We, they're cartoons, um, you know, like a, a, the journey of a frog or something like this can be an emotional experience for them because they don't connect this idea of reality to emotion. And I think that humans or you know, humans, adult humans tend to lose this, tend to lose this as they get a little bit older. And I think that, you know, Birdman tries to encapsulate this idea of, of playing with reality, playing with subjectivity. Would you say it's almost more like a magical realism type of... Yeah, it's interesting, of, too. I don't know where he's from, if he's from Latin America or South America or not. I thought he was Mexican. Yeah, that's not wouldn't uh, be too Alejandro, bad. Alejandro, I'm almost certain, is Mexican. Yeah. Well, that's an important... I mean, that's an important part, too, where, you know, myth plays an, over, an important feature overall. He's Mexican. He's Mexican. But myth plays an important feature overall in a lot of cultures. American cultures, we tend to like our myths to be, you know, our own concoction, or we like to own them a little bit more as well. You know, I think that, you know, there's actually politics. There's plenty of myths are myth. all just money-based, so they're not very magical. Yeah. Well, I, I know I think that... <laughs> and hence, highly lucrative and globalizable. Yes, exactly. And that's why, I, you know, I, I tend to think that most comic book films are infantile anyway. I don't, I don't enjoy them to a larger extent anyway. I don't because, like comic books. No, I don't like... I think that they're, I think that they're the basis of Actually, I have a question for the moderator here. Oh, God. Um, you know, just because, uh, like I was saying, that Birdman, as a, as a story does not engage me a whole lot because, you know, it's the actor thing. But, David, you as a furry and a a representative of a group that gets basically no media coverage and has no media outlets... And when that media is portrayed, it is for the worse. Exactly. Like, how does that make you feel when you watch, I mean, all of these movies that are, you know, I mean, the the storylines are pretty standard. You've got, you know, you've got straight people either trying to be in a relationship or failing at relationships or, you know, you got basic people like actors just trying to, you know, cope with the fact that they want to be famous and they're not. And, like, this is, this is these are demographics that, that they don't cover anything that you're interested in, but this is what most 
linear storylines cover. Oh, absolutely. Although I would say that as a megalomaniac, I can absolutely <laughs> relate to I can absolutely relate to the Michael Keaton side of this. And in fact, it's uh, not to again. I, I'm attempting not to editorialize here, just for my own sake, but. Part of the reason um, I don't like the way the story progresses in this is because the stereotypy of Michael. Ke- no, go ahead. I'm listening. I'm sorry. I didn't mean. I, just have to react. I, I couldn't hold it in. Please that continue. was a heavy sigh by Old Man Riley. Anyway, um, the stereotypy yes. of Michael Keaton's portrayal of what it is like to believe that you have supernatural authority and potential was flat to me. I actually didn't like it. I didn't think it evolved much through the course of the film. Granted, I haven't become washed up yet. I'm still on the side (laughs) where I haven't become a multi-billionaire like he's supposed to portray in the film. Um, But on the germinal side of that, I I was totally... It felt pandering to me. Okay. Okay. Um, which doesn't address your original question whatsoever, <laughs> but uh, the, the only way that I would necessarily relate it is in the way that, uh, uh, and I've mentioned this before in a machination log, how I, I really like reading furry literature because of the way it portrays normal people. Because normal directors portray weird people weird because they don't really understand. They have the caricature and uh, the example I always use in this is Snatch, where Guy Ritchie portrays the American in Snatch as this ridiculous buffon, basically, within the context of the whole movie. Because that's what all Europeans think Americans are. Because that's what Americans are. Yeah. And I love those caricatures. I really, <laughs> really enjoy those caricatures. Uh, but I, in order to tie this back into Birdman and to continue the conversation, um, we've talked a shitload about Regan Thomas and Alejandro seems like he would be closest to actors, so it makes sense that the actors, in, in the Hollywood actors, I should say. Yeah. Um, and maybe the, uh, maybe that's not true. Maybe he has worked with stage plays and that kind of stuff. But um, it seems like he would have more experience with them, and therefore their characters would be more two- or three-dimensional. What is this crowd's opinion of the other characters who are not necessarily in that mold, Edward Norton being the most obvious example, but then also the critic, Tabitha, I don't know the actress's name, uh, Emma Stone, and those characters. I mean, you know, Emma Stone, I, I, I actually liked. I thought she was a good, you know, recovering, angry, you know, drug-addicted, rich kid that has no direction in life. I, You know, she nailed it. It was great. I have no problem with her. Um, I do like the interplay between the critic and Riggin. Um, you know, how she tears him down and basically he tells her that she has nothing. She's not putting anything on line here. Yes, the labels. And, you know, I, I, I can respect that. I do like that interplay because I think it tells a lot about the place you know, all of these people have within their industry and how they don't get along, but they're constantly, but they need each other because the critic has nothing to write about if there isn't the actor and the actor needs the validation from the critic to be anything. So, I mean, like I said, I I think that, that, that all of these characters were done very well. Um, but just at the end of the day, like personally, I just don't care. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, no. I mean, the, the the big problem, too, is that this is 
you know, Ryan, do you relate to the strife of Michael Keaton in this movie? <laughs> okay. <laughs> this is a film about the plight of the net producer. That's what this film is. This is a film that represents the struggle of those who are actually trying to put out and make things in the world and what that overall entails. And this is why, I, I mean... I do connect inherently with these kinds of movies. As someone who's been accused of pretension and their personality before, I mean, I really do understand that this film tries hard. It really fucking tries hard. And I really, whenever someone calls me pretentious in even a, a perhaps a slight or joking manner, I've usually knocked that person down a peg overall because the only people who fling those kinds of critiques overall, I mean, anytime, next time some, anytime anyone calls you pretentious. Out of jest. Even out of jest, because it once you know in in humor veritas. No, I'm, I'm in outside of yeah, jest. outside of yeah, outside of jest. Whenever anyone tells you or accuses you of being pretentious, what they're really what they're really criticizing within you is your desire to try hard to accomplish something. They're trying to put down your overall understanding because, in a sense, here's let me just get this out real quick. In order to put the effort into give something your all, you have to, in a sense, whether you're tricking yourself to believe it or fucking can't trick yourself not to believe it, you have to give or uh, have that infect your being to a certain extent. And this film is about the conflict of how wanting to produce something affects not only yourself, but your relationships and those around you. The reason the other characters seem perhaps less, less multifaceted is because they are, in a sense, archetypes of the relation uh, of, uh, of manifestations of relationships that we all find common in our lives lovers friends competitors um, uh, compatriots people we, we uh, work with and of course perhaps even our children themselves and that these are in a sense this overall dynamic of what it means to create and what it means to give yourself all how you tell yourself the truth how you lie I think this film encapsulates very beautifully the struggle within oneself to actually become and try to produce something meaningful I guess on what topic actually on the character note that, you know, because all the characters are very well placed and they all, they're all like representations of, you know, who they're, they're playing. And I guess we haven't touched on the topic yet of how, you know, meta this, this is, you know, like these characters, I mean, you know, we have an actor who's playing an actor in a movie who's playing an actor in a play. Right. <laughs> and... It's hard to, you know, for as, as you know, for as much human emotion as Alejandro has managed to pull out uh, of the storylines from his previous movies, I think just the structure of this film limits kind of the, the range these people are even able to have because they are, they are playing characters of characters of characters and that is very important within the whole storyline because he's trying to like represent these different these different pieces and I feel like he used kind of like the meta storyline to get more of the feeling and character depth across than writing it into the actual characters. So in a sense, the characters it's are... It's what's off the page. I mean, the characters are stereotypical in a sense because that's what he's trying to represent is, is not so much the stereotypical, but just, you know, like the essence of, you know, the guy who's producing a play, the guy who's acting in the play. You know, like all these parts that come together 
to put a play together. He's trying to represent each of their roles, and he kind of depends on on the stereotype a little bit just because he doesn't even need to delve into them as emotional characters. He lets the story kind of let you know where these characters are and what they're supposed to be doing. And not only that, but, I mean... The idea that characters play a role in the story is the fucking point of characters in a story. The idea that, oh, they're stereotypical, we've got your your lead cast, your love interest, your supporting characters, your protagonist, your antagonist, blah, blah. Yes, 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 that's all stereotypical in the sense that we have labels for them and ways that we can combine them within a story. They're stereotypical in the sense that they all serve the point of the story. And if the story is contrived or has elements which we have experienced before, they sure as hell can seem stereotypical. But this, make no mistake, Birdman is about Birdman. The story is Riggin, is Birdman. Like, he is the story that we are meant, that all of this encapsulates and surrounds. And in a sense, they are one-sided because all we see is is the relationship as it pertains to the net producer, the the Riggin, Birdman. And that's, and it's, once again, he said off the page, right? I'm sure these people are fully fleshed out characters in their own existence, but once again, I think this film is very disciplined in that sense. It doesn't feel it has to pander to a kind of wider acceptance of what these characters should represent overall. It fucking has a point. To t- I think it has a very clear point, a very cl- clear struggle in what she's trying to rep- what, what, and what he's trying to represent. And I think it's got fucking u- uniqueness, discipline, and a hell of a lot of fucking virtuosity in which she tried to encapsulate this overall story. And like I said, the thing is just impressive to me. I'm, I cry not because I, th- when I watch this film, not because I think that the, I, I sympathize or empathize with the character of Riggin expressly, but the goddamn thing is so well orchestrated that I see, we talk about tessellations and things linking up within this story overall. That is what I see within this. And overall, I, I, I weep and I, I, am, I emote when I see something achieve that. And to a certain extent, the story is merely the, the boat and I'm crying because I'm on the river and I fucking am buying into the movement and flow of, of the journey I've been fucking on. And the story is just a way in which you experience the larger fucking flow of what this thing is trying to accomplish. And Within that sense, I love that I love this film. I really, really enjoy this film, and it evokes much within me that, once again, perhaps I'm predisposed to enjoy anyway. Right, Michael Keaton, the net, the net producer, <laughs> the struggles of fucking creativity, and the difficulty that that takes to actually put something out there is once again. I mean, this film preaches. What, what did she say? Like, it, you know, this doesn't matter. This is a play for a thousand rich people whose only concern is where they'll get coffee afterwards. Like, but still. You know he's out there doing this, and this is you know this speaks to a lot of to very very few amount of people who I think could even begin to try to relate to that. And once again, I've always contended that empathy depends on imagination, and if we lack the ability to have imagination and to want to break down the barriers of what our own psychosis prevents us from seeing the world through other people's eyes, we have to achieve that in order to enjoy film. Ryan, because it requires less imagination on your part in this particular case, to be empathetic. Are you being unfair to the people who can't relate to these characters more directly? No, I don't think so. I think that they, that mainly because, look, I don't think that there are inherently stupid people in the world. I don't think there are inherently unimaginative people. I think that crime is, is that we have a general societal structure that fucking weeds individuality and imagination out of people. I mean, fucking grates them into the cog that they should become in this world. And that is not an imaginative cog. And 
I think that any human has to kind of make a sense of how fucking ground down they're going to be in this world. And unfortunately, you know, I think many people from the time they're children and fucking lose this and move beyond it. But I think it's rediscoverable. I've rediscovered it. I rediscovered it in myself. And I have very little patience for people who don't or who are unwilling, who 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 criticize, who put labels on things before they're willing to go there and experience it as well. And they're the ones who are being unfair. They're the ones who are being unfair. Although, for what it's worth, I would like to point out that you just made, you just recast Michael Keaton's monologue to the critic. That's right what I was just yes, thinking, no, that actually. Was, and no, yes. and that's, that, that's my intention. That is, that is what he puts forward oh, in okay. this as that well. Oh, okay, yes. that is your directorial yeah. intent with that. Okay. In a, like I said, in a larger sense, he doesn't necessarily talk about imagination. He, he critiques her for being lazy, for not wanting to try. In a sense, he... She is the traitor, right? She was part of this world, but then moved outside from it. Most people, I think, don't, were never part of it anyway. But it doesn't mean that they can't get there in, to a certain extent. That's why he despises the critic. She has the ability to create, but she chooses a safer, lazier path. That's why I think his enmity for her is as vicious as it is. I don't know if she has the ability. It's it's more of that, you know, she chose to, as a profession, she basically chose to, you know, essentially shit on everyone else's hard work, and she doesn't have to put anything into it, which is what we're doing right now, uh, essentially, and what everybody... And loving it. <laughs> and, and, and what everybody does that, that consumes... One of the tough things about producing art is that once you put it out there, it's no, it's no longer yours. It's everybody else's to shit on, and they didn't have to do anything yeah. and for she... that. And that's... Yeah. You know, that's the tough thing about being the producer. No, no, no. <laughs> and I don't mean to, you know, I mean I don't mean to bag on 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 normal people, normies. I mean, I don't really mean to to be harsh on them, but as someone who has been who, you know, from when I was raised and from when I've experienced my life as an adult as well, you know, in not only recognizing that you're different, but oftentimes being treated like you were different as well. And I mean, gifted people here, I mean, have you guys experienced in your own life where not only have you felt different from how other people think and feel, but have been conspicuously told that you don't belong here because you don't think and feel like we do? I mean, I had, you know, I had a strong desire when I was younger to want to be liked by people. And I was, you know, as a process when I was growing up and as I've experienced as an adult as well, people have told us that, you know, when you express yourself personally or you reveal something about yourself that doesn't conform to a kind of preconceived notion of however we want to define societal values in general, especially in terms of art or personality, that you shouldn't fucking be a part of this because you're not of us or like us. Do you think that Tabitha represents the normies in this movie? No, that's she, what it sounds like. No, she's a she's a gatekeeper into the world that she operates on. She feel and once again, she feels that he is trying. He's he's a he's a charlatan in the sense that he wants the validation of of this world in which she is protected. And she feels that once again, much she she also mirrors to a certain extent what Edward Norton's character mirrors as well. The idea that theater has an element of truth that film cannot encapsulate, especially the Hollywoodized film. I mean, if anything, the Birdman essence is what the normies are all about. I mean, that is what the, you know, the Birdman sub-character within Regan's personality is what the normies and, represent. And he's fighting that constantly because that's where, that's where the money is, you know? Like, he, he, could, he could have gone back and made 47 Birdmans and he still would have been famous and he still would have been rich. Would he have been f fulfilled as an actor? Eh, probably not. But, um... 
you know, it would have been successful and he would have been playing into the norms. But now because he wants to move past that and show that he has more range, he's, you know, Tabitha does become now a, a gatekeeper that he has to get past because he needs her validation to, you know, even prove that he is better than than Birdman. And part of his plight is the fact that he needs that outside validation by the very nature of what he's choosing to uh, to produce. You know, like like I said, art art is tough because once you put it out there, it's everybody else's to make an opinion on. And and you still have to find meaning and find, you know, your own sense of self-worth amongst all of that. So I got two points here. The Birdman character, the, Bir- the Birdman self-dialogue within Riggin is that, is that when we talk about normal people, we generally, the idea of crit- critiquing them for being superficial, right? The, to critique them for the vanity and the material is what he represents, right? The, the, the sterile notions of power, of acceptance, of, 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 of um, the veneer, the sexuality that he talks about, right? He's like, get get surgery. We'll you know we'll we'll push your face back. You know, we'll you can buy become, you a new nose. Yeah, we'll buy. Well, we, you will be that new that old person you could be. I mean, he does represent that larger side, and you know, Hollywood represents this thing, which she calls you know pornography. She refers to it, right? Pornography is fucking without love. I mean, that's what pornography is. And what what is the title of his play? What we talk about when we talk about love. That's what he fucking is trying to achieve. He wants this of himself. And, I mean, let's not forget also, what we talk about when we talk about love, the fucking second title of this movie is The Virtue of Ignorance. There's this got to be this connection between what we put out when we want to achieve love and what we seek and, and how we seek it can't be necessarily the conscious, you know, strategic, superficial process of wanting to gain it. It's this... I'm really really impressed with this movie because it is able to encapsulate this 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 notion or this idea of what we want and how we want to achieve it necessarily can't be this controlled conscious process overall and yes it's driven in a sense by our frailties and our drive and our emotion our light behind the eyes that we have no words to express or explain and yet it is an integral part and we you know some people have to satisfy it in different ways and i do agree guys actors are some of the most horrible people in the world right next to engineers in the sense that they have to achieve this emotionality. But once again, you know, I don't see this film as a film about fucking actors. I see this film as a as an overall understanding of what it means to create in general. And I'm go I'll go there with you and I'll I'll, I'll hang out with you in the actor side of this film, but in a larger sense, you ha- I, I would really hope that you guys recognize that this is a movie about the creative process in any field and it's in any field and it's Principles and, and attributes and aspirations can be viewed in a wider sense as well. That's why I'm afraid of how much you like this film is the degree to which you've mapped it onto you. Well, you can't inter- you can't not internalize these things. Come on, man! Like you see something that you like and you're like, that has nothing. I can't relate to that at all. But I fucking loved it. I mean, it does speak to a certain extent as well to you. I like James Brown a lot. All right. Hey, man! I've seen you dance around. I know, and I love James Brown too. Don't get me wrong. All right, gotta get my dipping stick, and I want to go at the payback, and I want all these things in my life as well. But it does encapsulate something within you, also. To I mean, I can't explain why I love James Brown. I mean, I just do. I'm just saying, Birdman's connection is insanely obvious for you. Okay, so By is compa- that why you? I'm, no, 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 I'm no. I'm, that's why you invited me to talk about. No, 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 no. no, no. <laughs> I'm, I, I'm not. I'm, I'm saying this as sort of a bouncing off point, Nicole. Yes. As the more lukewarm participant here. 
does that does that connection that he's talking about exist for you? I mean, what he's saying about he's saying that it's not a film about actors, but it's a film about the creative process so and much putting more. and putting yourself out there. Um, okay. Yes, you could. You, yeah, I suppose you could read it. You could read it that way because. Like I said b- before, even though this film doesn't hit me on on as big of an emotional level as uh, clearly it does for Ryan, I do appreciate, like, you know, technically as a film, I think it's it's done, it it's done really well. And Alejandro knows how to put a film together. He knows how. He knows how the Hollywood system works. He knows how to get what he wants out of his actors. Clearly. And in that sense, yes, this film is a representation of the process that it takes to put something out there. Um, I didn't read that into it initially. Like I didn't, I didn't look at it from that perspective. But I can see how you can, how you could, you could take it, uh, you could take it that direction. And in that sense, it is actually a very good film about the you know, about producing a product. Um, but because the reason I, I fall back on the acting part so much is because that's like visually what's there. I right. mean, it's 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 a talking movie. It is a lot of acting in that movie. It's 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 almost all talking. And that's that's what's like in front of you while you're physically watching and enjoying okay. the film. Uh, so like that's what. That's what you have to get through. So to be able to get to the position where Ryan is, you've got to kind of, you've you've got to go past all of the dialogue and you've got to get past that. And I I understand that. But from a general audience perspective, that's very hard. And I feel like that might be why a lot of people just generally just can't can't get through to this film. Well, and that's that's why I mentioned my that's that's why I mentioned off the page up front on this was the degree to which <laughs> placing yourself on top of it. And again, I, I mentioned that I feel slightly alien to Keaton because he's trying, <laughs> he's trying to be, he, he's trying to portray something that I have in my own ego. And I think he's doing it badly. And I find that alienating. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, okay. Okay. Yeah. All right. Uh, so I, so it's another. It, you're you're in the same boat as me. Is where like on a personal level. I have a sort level, of antipathy for his yeah, character. Yeah, it doesn't. Yeah, like the, it doesn't. It doesn't. It doesn't work for you, and and it doesn't necessarily work for me. As it doesn't pull me in as much as it does for Ryan. But you know, I understand Ryan's point because if you if you get past that, there there is there is a brilliant brilliant, you know. Meditation, yes. a fucking uh, uh, a dialogue, a fucking exploration of what this thing tries of, to, of, of what of, this thing's of about. Of producing yes. something and putting it out there. Okay, two points. <laughs> <laughs> I think that, you know, in a lot of ways, oftentimes, okay, if you talk about normal people in general sense, I think that there is this idea that there is the point or purpose or devotion that some people feel to their lives, many people... I think, fall back on their evolutionary principles, right? Many people get that satisfaction through other people, through their social connections. And I think that that's how a lot of people satisfy the cravings and desires of meaning in their life. They fall back on evolutionarily what has oftentimes been the overall purpose, other people. Now, I just lost my second point. Oh, no, okay, now, Nicole. Yes, yes. 
this problem of relating to an overall story. I mean, I don't. Do you remember one of the most vicious fights we've been in about films in recent history was the argument we had about Wes Anderson's Moonrise Kingdom. Do you remember this argument we had? This was back when you had the in the uh, in the in the um, uh, in the extension from that from the where the table used to be, where we used to play like our board games and stuff. We had an argument about Moonrise Kingdom, and I still contend while I like that movie, as I enjoy all Wes Anderson films, I do is too. One of my, is one of my least favorite Wes Anderson films. I dislike that movie a lot, and one of the reasons I dislike that movie is because you hate children. To a certain extent, but it, no, 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 I've I've loved films with movie, with children in them. I love I love the idea of childhood. I I like it more than I think most children enjoy their childhood. But I simply do not feel or believe that those two fucking characters are actually in love in that film. I do not fucking see it. And this is the thing: is that I know I know that film beats you over the goddamn head, telling you that they're in love. But I don't ever feel it. It's like people are like I I don't like that movie, and people are like why not? It's beautiful. It's about love. Those kids are in love. I'm like stop telling me they're in love. I know they're supposed to be in love, but there is no point in that clunky fucking acting in that movie that makes me feel that those two kids are actually in love. And I don't. It's not a fault to the actors themselves. I'm not blaming them, but it is Wes Anderson's fault that he chose these amateurs to display a deep sense of childhood fucking emotion. And I just can't get there. All of the and I mean that film is a beautiful movie. But it is only made more stark how poor the decision is to choose those child actors when you've got a that ho-hum, glum sense that Francis McDormand and Edward Norton, reappearing again, and Bruce Willis display in that film. You actually see good actors, and then you're displayed this ridiculous fucking interplay between those kids. I just don't see it, and I, and I dislike that movie as a result. I, I definitely think in terms of Wes Anderson films, I think it's, it's cute, but I don't think it... What I like about Wes Anderson is that he can he can hit emotional nuances in his films very subtly. Uh, a lot of times you miss them until you've watched the films like 87 times, which yes. I've watched most of them probably that many I've times. Seen, I've seen Cons- more, yeah, conservatively. I'm on, I'm on my seventh viewing of Moonrise Kingdom. Okay. I saw it at least four times in the theater. Yes. Um, I, I do think that that is his shallowest film. Yes. Um, it is cute. I like the whole feel of it, but I feel that that one, like looking back on it now, it misses the emotional nuances that his other films have and what make his other films so appealing to me. And part of that may be, and this is also a production issue, working with kid actors is hard, which is why for the most part, Hollywood directors don't want to fucking do it. It's hard. Kid actors suck. It, it they can ruin a perfectly good movie, as Ryan is expressing continue. right now. Um, so I I definitely see where you're going with that. In that it, that that movie comes across as cute, but it's not nearly as impactful I as his other films. And and part of the problem might be because he decided to use kids in a film. That may have just been a shitty decision. I can't. I Does mean, that apply to Grand Budapest Hotel? I've only watched that one three times so far, and I've watched... Wow, Mom has watched it more than that. Yeah, um, 
ask me next year after I've gotten a handful more viewings in, because like I said, I've conservatively seen every other Wes Anderson film about 87 times, and I just haven't watched Grand Budapest Hotel enough to extract everything that might be in there. I do feel like Grand Budapest Hotel shies away from some of his little emotional nuances a little bit more, in essence, so that he could put together a bigger production, which worked for him, because that one probably was commercially his biggest success. Which one? Grand Budapest Hotel. I believe so. Um, also, there wasn't a whole lot of kids in there to ruin things. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I mean, I have, I find that, you know, when I express an opinion in my own vicious, I guess, way you could accuse me of, you know, that people look at me like, I, like I've, like, punched a puppy when I tell them how much I dislike Moon, Moonrise Kingdom so much. So, and it's, it's in that sense that I, you know, in that case, the, the method or the, the, the component of the, story, of, the, of the cinema, the cinematic nature of it, has, in a sense, let me down. And in a sense, the director deserves fault for that, not necessarily the child actors. Like, people think I'm, like, bagging on the kids. It's like, no, it's fucking Wes Anderson's problem. No, that's what I mean. It, maybe it wasn't a great idea to tackle a kid movie if he couldn't get what he needed to out of it, especially because that storyline is so dependent on the fact that those two kids are in love. I mean, that's the whole premise of the whole movie. So if he wasn't able to pull it off, maybe, you know, like you said, that was a director issue. Yeah, and it's it's funny, too, because it's one of those films where people, I think, like the idea of it more than what is actually represented in the film itself. That may be very true. And it's just, it's it's strange, too, because, you know, when I talk about Grand Budapest Hotel with people, you know, you talk about internalizing film in general, right? So let's get back to me to the point of Birdman. Do I internalize this film too much, right? Do I see too much of myself in it in my recent struggles? Are you Ref yeah, I, I do. If I should grow a pencil thin mustache, I think that I would be in that case as well. Because, you know, I am I am coming around on Grand Budapest Hotel's. You know, on the right day, it's probably my favorite Wes Anderson film, and it's consistently in the top three. Do you know what has grown on me after many more viewings is Darjeeling Limited. Really? Have you watched that one recently? Yeah, I saw that one recently, and it actually okay. plunged for really. Down. See that one? That one actually has been growing on me. Oh, uh, I have I have the same problem with Darjeeling that I have with Moonrise. I find it to be his most insincere film, and I thought that at first, but it's 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 working its way up. Okay. I find his most insincere film to be fabulous Mr. Fox, but part of that is because Mr. Fox is a freaking sociopathic asshole and none of those animals should have listened to him. I don't know what they were doing. I know, I love that. I, I know that's your favorite one. It is not my favorite one. <laughs> what is your favorite one? I will take offense to that. Um, that is, that's a weird question. I want to say it is actually Grand Budapest Hotel at this point, but I need to go back and watch the Royal Tenenbaums again. I've only seen it once. Yeah, that's that was, that was before that was my favorite one of his as well. As I'm a, I'm a my favorite one is still Zisu. Yeah, well, in Life Aquatic yeah. is it's it's the special place in my heart. One of those, like I think Grand Budapest Hotel may be a better movie, but there is something about the Bill Murray as Steve Zisu that is magical in a way that the other movies. Can't okay, match. so bringing that up now, Wes Anderson did did wonders for reviving Bill Murray's career. Right. Do you think that this movie is going to do something like that for for Bert, for uh, Michael Keaton? Oh, I would hope so. I okay, like yeah. I, mean, not, I, don't, I don't love. I'm, is he going to get surgery? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Are we going to see him as the next Batman? Clean things up, man. This could be powerful again. No, I don't. Um, <sighs> 
Look, this is this is. I'm just casually asking this. You don't have to kill yourself. Thinking I don't about think so. It. No, I don't think so. I don't think so. I think uh, I think his top his 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 marketability is 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 shot out. You know, there's no no doubt about Keaton's that. He's not the Nutravolta. No, he's not the Nutravolta <laughs> at all. Although it'd be uh, he's cool going to be very disappointed about that. I'm Mike, really. Mike, baby, give me a call. I mean, I love you. You know, I love what you do. I mean, if we can produce something together, just I'm here. I'm waiting, man. But no, I mean, uh, I love film. I love this. Film Birdman in particular, I do connect with it to a certain extent in the sense that I, it does mirror a larger component of what I see is important in a philosophical sense as well. However, what I also look for and enjoy in films is a certain amount of depth, right, and scope in the filmmaking process as well. I think that this, which is very hard to find these days, yes, and I think this film is is rich beyond what I've been able to bring out. In, its, in my mere two viewings of this thing in one year. I think what I've found or what I've noticed within this element, uh, within this film as well, is what is, once again, we're kind of surface oil people here, right? We are, we've seen this thing twice. I've tripped over something. I've found, I've found a little bit of, you know, net producer script to my shoe, and I can dig there and dig up more of this element that I enjoy of this film. But I think that there is, an ent- there is a richness and a depth to this film that we are... We would, I think, have two or three more episodes of podcasts to discuss the nature of truth, the nature of of how we relate. Edward Norton's inability. Are you, you know, uh, Emma Stone's character asks him, "Are you, are you pretending?" He's like, I, "I don't. I pretend everywhere else, but on the stage." And I, once again, there's a lot of, there is a lot of depth to this film that is beyond what I enjoy in it. And I, once again, you know, I don't mean to sound too harsh on people that disagree with me overall, but I do resent the fact that when someone is presented with depth, when they place something, what I consider, what, fuck it, something petty, something superficial in the way of even experiencing or, you know, having to deal with that depth, when they use that as a specific way to not dig into something and understand it more, that's what I have a problem with. I don't, I don't think that everyone has to agree or like what I like, but you'd better have fucking a well-developed reason as to what you see within something, and why or why or why not you enjoy it. And I think that most people are too offhanded. I think that something initially strikes them wrong, and they're like, oh, I'm not going well, with this project. I think also, in general, I mean, you know, analysis is difficult, and if you don't know how to do it, you, you, you can't do it. So I think a lot of people just don't... It requires imagination. Yeah, well, a lot of people just don't know how to look at something and extract that depth out of it. I mean, it works for art. You know, you know, you go in your art history class and your teacher's like, you don't know how to like that painting. You know, it's the it's the same thing. It's the same thing here. There's, there's a lot going on and a lot of people aren't going to be able to see it. And like I said, I see it. I can appreciate the movie on a technical level. I can appreciate its execution. It just doesn't really hit me on a personal note, though. I think it is important to note, though, we've brought it up several times in this, um, and I do happen to agree with this, even though I don't get to do it as often as I'd like, maybe. Watching a movie more than once is critical to actually understanding what's going on in it, because you need you need to step back far enough from the surprise of the movie, the immediate emotional reaction of it, to the anticipatory phase where you can actually pay attention to what's going on, uh, which is Wes Anderson films get slammed in a more general audience capacity. I've heard plenty of stories about, speaking of Fantastic Mr. Fox, I didn't, you know, I like that movie. <laughs> I like that movie. Christopherson is very cute, but it's not, it's not one of my favorites even on rewatches, but a lot of people, especially those who thought it was a kid's movie, 
<laughs> I've heard many stories. I've heard many stories of people walking out of the theater. Mm-hmm. And it's because Wes Anderson's films are so constructed that without a second watch, they basically don't make sense. And I understand that that's a shitty argument to make at first blush because no one wants to be told that they're not going to understand based on their initial impressions. But, I mean, Wes Anderson, I think all three of us can agree, is a perfect example of a thing that gets better with age. It's it's 100% true. Uh, The first time... Uh, my mom saw the movie in the theater. She saw it because Bill Murray was in it, didn't know anything else about it, came back, told me it was the stupidest movie. She had no idea what was going on. I immediately told her, we are going back to the theater tomorrow and we're watching it again. She loves the movie now after multiple viewings. But but yeah, that initial, that initial viewing, she didn't know what to expect, couldn't process it, and thought it was a terrible movie. I mean, you practically... You practically ought to just go in having read the screenplay. Yeah, that might help. At some point. (laughs) No, and I think that you've raised a kind of wider problem in general. You know, when we talk about net consumer, net producer, I think net consumers are all about initials, right? All about the initial experience, all about the way in which it just... It's the hit. Yeah, it's the hit. It's the (laughs) the ping that I'm looking for. And, you know, what what makes that superficial is that if you only seek those, those initial hits out, you're only, once again building on your own preconceptions, right? You're not you're not constructing anything. You're merely looking at something in the mirror and judging what you see back as it reflects and pertains only to your initial construction. And people, you know, critics even and people who are, you know, who have more perhaps imagination or more proclivity to it or what have you, or people who exercise or build that muscle, you know, the depth of understanding about something is what is inherently richer about experience in life rather than its initial impression. And so to understand something, I mean, if, if anyone in your audience, what is the thing that you've enjoyed the most and how often or how o- often are you able to enjoy it? How many times have you watched something and not just watched it on in the background, but watched it and really tried to know this film? I know certain Wes Anderson films and many other films. Indeed, I know some books almost line by line. And the funny thing is, is someone says, well, how can you read this? How can you see it over and over again? And I'm just surprised in the sense that the idea of familiarity reveals its depth to you as well. There can be, there is something there, even in some of the most mundane things that you haven't seen in that initial viewing. And I think it's, once again, people accuse me of fucking being pretentious or egotistical. (laughs) How fucking egotistical is it that you could watch something once and completely fucking understand it to build up some judgment about how it relates to you? People inherently don't do that. What they're doing is, is they're in a sense just hedonists. They want something that will give them pleasure in the moment and satisfy a preconceived notion. And they don't go through the shit and the struggle, as we talked about before, of understanding something in a larger field or a larger depth. I think that's fucking pretentious. I think that's pretentious. And I think that overall is not exactly what is good about how a lot of people consume media, consume art, consume politics, consume social relationships. I think that is what is, to, to a very large extent, the ego that many people bring to things. It's funny that I get that I get accused of being e- egotistical when I'm willing to watch a film several times over again to make sure that I understand and see something for what I think is its widest depth and scope that I can try to find. Do you think something. they're mistaking your pretentiousness for the fact that you care? Because I think that's a why lot you, of times why when, do you when, care I, so much? when I get accused of being pretentious and... Uh, most notably, it's uh, with my reptile business. We're kind of perceived a little bit. The responsible herpetoculturist. The responsible herpetoculturist. Yes, we're we're perceived as being a bit pretentious. But, I mean, it's really just because we're 
better at what we do than all the other people in our field, and they're threatened by that, and they're fucking lazy. Yes. So then I'm the pretentious one. Yes. No, it is a it is a critique of the mundane. Uh, pretension is thrown around only by people who generally are mundane, and I find that to be, you know, infuriating overall. And like I said, if anyone ever accused me of that, or if anyone, David, we talked before, when someone asks you that question, why do you care so much? I mean, doesn't that just drop them down a little bit in your eyes overall? No. No. I have a low opinion of people up front. Oh, so yeah, you, can't, you, can't, you, can't, you can't go further than the negative. Expect, right. you shouldn't be expecting more from them. That's not specifically true. No, it is It is aggravating, but on, uh, I think the side of it that I don't have, if we fall slightly farther down this rabbit hole, the part the part that I don't have in that equation is that I under I feel like I understand where they are coming from assuming that of me. Um, because I do understand that I'm a non-normative case. I am okay being told that I'm fucked up. Right. Because I feel I have the resources to deal with that. So you don't feel the rigging idea of, like, wanting to, to, to having some sense of proof. Because some usually... No, that's... And again, I can't really... I don't relate to that character because the way that he is vulnerable feels fake to me. I think... I, that's I, interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Now, please, I'm sorry. Oh, no, no, I wasn't... It was, I, that, that was about all there is to say. Okay. The way that he portrays megalomania, I believe a lot of people in a very insular way can relate to that, but it is so emotional that it's practically dishonest. I mean, but I think I maybe mean, we can go make a roundtable idea on this as well. I mean, how do we understand this idea of validation that kind of comes from what Birdman tends to be about? I mean, is that what the virtue of ignorance is? Is being ignorance of the validation in which you receive for something? I would like to go full editorial. I hate that subtitle. Right. I don't think it makes any sense. I I am struggling with it too. I I think it's. I, I, I don't I, see him as ignorant. I, yeah, that doesn't I, make sense to me. I, I, I've been struggling with that too, and I don't have anything profound to say on the 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 subtitle yet. But I feel it's it doesn't quite hit the mark. Yeah, I was just, and I don't I don't have exactly why, but I've been thinking about it for a couple of days, and it doesn't work for me. Yeah, either. That, that was just I don't feel like I don't feel like ignorance is a huge component in that film. Like no matter how I've looked at it so far, I mean, it would almost make more sense for it to say obliviousness if we're supposed to talk about. This is so much fun. Now I get to be an editorial. I, I get to uh, I get to have an opinion on this. I think almost every character except for Riggin is completely one dimensional because it's supposed to be through the lens of his eyes where he's not paying much attention to everybody else, but that's not ignorance, that's obliviousness. Um, or that, self-absorption, because yeah, exactly. clearly he has suffered a huge, his whole life has suffered because of him being so self-absorbed in whatever it was he was doing. You know, this is obviously stuff off the script that's implied, but, you know, obviously it's been a huge issue in his life that he's been so self-absorbed and not responsive to what's going on around him. I, I like the unexpected virtue of self-absorption. <laughs> that would... <laughs> That would probably, probably be a little too long, but I, I'm alright. It might it. be more accurate, though. Yeah. And on that note, <laughs> on that note, if you haven't seen Birdman, watch it twice, make your own opinions, and uh, post them in the comments or something. Yeah. I don't fucking know. We don't have any social outreach yet, aside from a Twitter, a Facebook, a comment section, and an email. <laughs> so it would make total sense that no one's listening to this. Um, but if you do, we appreciate it. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. Does anyone have any closing thoughts about this movie? I made a million notes about this movie that we didn't need, which I'm very thankful for. 
Oh. I had like a list. I had like a list of all the scenes and the actors in case we needed to do any of that. But thankfully, we got far enough off topic. Not necessary. Oh yes, and if you want, if you really, really want to, you know, just just be torn down emotionally. Try one of Alejandro's other films, Amoris Peros, 21 Grams, Beautiful, Babel. They're not a good time, but they're worth the watch. Can't, I can't but agree. Excellent. All right. Um, thank you, Nicole. Thank we, you. We will have you back, certainly, for more movie anger in the future, no doubt. Uh, possibly with a more recent or far less recent movie than Birdman. I just picked Birdman because I happened to have watched it a week ago. And... Uh, People had mixed review, mixed thoughts about it. People, it was a love-hate movie, and usually I love those. Uh, Steve Zissou and uh, The Life Aquatic and Speed Racer fall into those categories. That's oh. actually only two movies. Do you not like Speed Racer? Oh, and on that note, not. we can't be friends anymore. The Actual Garbage <laughs> Podcast, we're signing out. Excellent. Tune in next week when...